This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, he was the first Canadian hip-hop artist to hit gold on the charts. He's a musical artist, an actor. I mean, you name it. And Maestro Fresh West has done it and been doing it for the last 30 years. Well, now he has taken his award-winning memoir and turned it into a children's book called Stick to Your Vision, Young Maestro Goes to School. And he joins us now to talk more about it. Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. How's everybody doing? We're good. Thank you. So turning to a children's book author, how did this happen? Um, that's a good question. I've been doing a lot of presentations through schools, like high school, elementary schools, colleges, and the elementary school students really gravitated towards me. And there's a lot of times when we do um, speeches and stuff like that, sometimes it, it becomes a little too cerebral for the younger students. Um, so you want to be a little more animated when, when, when you do those specific ones. And when I saw how they, they responded to me, I'm like, wow, imagine if I could, could uh, put something together in a, a kid's book form. You know, and I, I, my co-author was a, she's a first grade teacher. And uh, I thought it was a perfect synergy right there, especially with the illustrations as well. So shout out to Redor Melton Vanderpool, as well as uh, Leon Eclipse Robinson. Um, on the project, but um, no, I'm proud of doing a kid's book. It's, it's cool. Yeah. So what was the message that you wanted to get through? Like when you're going to schools to talk about kids and you want to reach them with that message, what do you want to tell them? Well, the book itself, what I'll say is the book emphasized the importance of family structure, um, mentorship, as well as the importance of inspirational elementary school teachers. So I think at this specific time, teachers are being, um, uh, you know, unappreciated, disregarded, so this is something where that I've been blessed to have some, you know, along with my parents, I've had some great uh, teachers along in my life that helped me become, you know, the artist I am today as well as the, the man I am today as well. So just to reflect and, and, and uh, appreciate and celebrate uh, the experience of being in, in, in school right now, because look at what's going on this, this time right now. A lot of times right now there's restrictions, what have you. So there's something special about that union. Of, of kids going to school and having that relationship with, with, with uh, teachers as well as other students as well. So you were such a groundbreaker. You know, I remember watching you when I was in high school um, and I didn't think anything of it. To me, it was perfectly normal. You, you normalize, you know, us seeing something new on our TV screens and the type of music that we were listening to. But how did that happen for you? There must've been a lot of struggle to get to that point. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of self doubt, you know, and but you really got to, you know, that's why I say like you have to have a high expectation of yourself no matter what. And that's something that we all lack at some points. Right. Um, if you see the cover of the book, the kid looks pretty stressed out, yeah. <laughs> having a bit of self-doubt. So, you know, just like my, my first book is broken down in three sections. So the same with the three chapters in this kid's book, which is expectation, operation and destination. So once you have a high expectation of yourself, the operation is just putting that work in and it's OK to fall 
get back up. It's okay to fail to get back up to be successful if you want to reach that destination. And especially the last part of the school year right now, we want to see kids um, stay focused right now and end on a, on, on a, on a strong note so they can reach that destination of, of finishing the school year, regardless of if, if it's uh, remote or if they're going in. And once they do, it's time for celebration. Yeah, I know. I feel like we all need some celebration. Uh, yeah. did, did you ever get like frustrated along the way in your journey? There must have been moments where you, did the business frustrate you and, and you felt like, I, I don't know how I'm going to keep doing this. Yeah, I mean, coming out of Toronto, Canada, back in the days making music, a lot of people told me I was dreaming. Um, you know, there was a lot of um, negative energy out there, you know, and that's why words are so powerful. A lot of times I... I I felt like I wasn't good enough, you know, but I had to, I don't know, maybe I fell down as a baby and bucked my head and something's wrong with me, but I feel <laughs> that, that, that if I work hard um, and especially now putting the, having the right people around you, anything could happen. Like this book, for example, we started this September 8th and um, I think the first edit was done September 27th, you know? So, I mean, the, the last edit was not too long ago, but <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the bottom line is, um, there was a lot of, of challenges. There was a lot of doubt, not only on this project, but throughout my career, as, as you're mentioning, throughout life, you know, yeah. just coming out of Toronto, um, trying to do something in, in an industry where I had no point of reference. It was really challenging. But, um, you know, I stuck with it and I continue to, to evolve. And um, it's, not, it's one thing to say stick to your vision, but sometimes you got to have a revision. And that's something that we all have to do right now in these times right now, revise certain plans, come up with a couple audibles or contingency plans. And um, yeah, and here I am now, 30 years later, still evolving. And um, you might know I was on a television series called Mr. D, played yes. a school teacher for, for eight years. How cool is that? And now I'm, I'm writing a kid's book. So a there's going to be more to it than that. <laughs> but I, my whole thing is just trying to expand and take my career to the next level and make the, the biggest impact. I can on my, on my community. And when you look back and you okay, okay, rapper, artist, record producer, actor, author, what's your favorite thing out of all those different things that you've been doing? I mean, I try to compartmentalize. So what, while I'm doing uh, being an author, that's my favorite. But when I'm performing, that's my favorite too. When I'm acting, that, that's something I enjoy as well. I think overall the most comforting thing to me is probably performing because I know people know like my music and stuff like that and I've been doing it the longest. So... Hip-hop is what's fueling everything else that I've been able to do, and which is a beautiful thing. So I always try to put out new music. And even that song you just finished playing right there, um, Underestimated, mm -hmm. that came out in 2015. You know, my first record came out in 89, you know? So um, that shows longevity as well. It, it and does, it, yeah. It was important for me to, uh, you know, put out new music for me to grow as well. How does it feel when you get the nod from like today's big artists, when they look to you and they say, Hey, there's the guy who started it all. That's the person I looked up to. It's a good feeling because like my whole thing is like, I learned from those artists too, as well. I'm not one of those guys that it's my way or the highways. Like, wow. Okay. This is what we did back in the days. What's going on now. I mean, obviously I gravitate more towards what I did back in the days, but it's like, it would be, it would be arrogant for me not to, um, still be a student of, of you know the game and learn new, new ways of producing music and, and making songs like Quincy Jones used to be a, a jazz trumpet player in the 50s and 60s and in the 80s he became a producer doing a thriller for Michael Jackson which was like disco records yeah. you know so <laughs> so true so it's important evolution is important 
Evolution is important. So tell us once again, what is the name of the children's book? The children's book is called Stick to Your Vision, Young Maestro Goes to School, and you could purchase it at youngmaestro.ca. We will do that. Listen, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks a lot, dear. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about Canadians' mental health issues. As we were just saying with Gord, there does seem to be this anxiety, this angst out there, and understandably so when you consider everything we've gone through over the last, well, more than a year now. And it turns out, according to a new Ipsos poll, the number of Canadians who say they're experiencing mental health issues continues to go up across the country. Half of those who were surveyed are actually being deemed as high risk. But here there is a a small silver lining in this. The poll also found an increasing number of people, 53%, say they're willing to discuss those issues with family, with health professionals, or just publicly even on social media to talk openly about it. And that is a big jump from the last time Ipsos polled on public health, on public mental health, which would have been April 2018, when only 41% of Canadians said that they had discussed their issues publicly. For more on this, joining us now is Jennifer McLeod Macy, who's the Vice President at Ipsos Public Affairs. Jennifer, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So these are really interesting questions. So you were asked, is it, was it COVID-related mental health anxiety, do you think, people were experiencing? Well, we definitely can't, uh, can't deny that COVID plays a factor in here. But sadly, we were seeing increasing rates of mental health even before we knew there'd be such thing as a pandemic. So what, what did you see? What were people telling you in this survey? Well, we've got... Um, a good proportion, a majority who feel stressed to the point where it had an impact on how they live their daily life happening not just once a year, but several times a year. We've got people who feel like they can't cope with things, depressed to the point of hopelessness. This is really troubling at um, close to half the people feeling that at least once in the past year. And of course, there's a, a proportion who feel that they could seriously consider suicide or self-hurt at one in four, at least once felt that way in the past year. Well, that seems really high. Yeah, that seems really high. Yeah, it's alarming. And it's been on the rise since we've been tracking this over the last six or seven years. And I've been doing a lot of work in this space outside of this poll. And and really, we were in a troubling spot before COVID came. COVID hasn't done us any favours. And as much as we'd like to put COVID behind us soon, it's going to be with us for a while. So I think these numbers are going to continue to inch up. Are you able to take a look at it kind of province by province? Were there some provinces that had higher numbers than others? Yes, there were, actually. Uh, we have a huge spike in Alberta right now. Um, also, Atlantic Canada and Ontario, um, majorities all at risk of uh, mental health issues, according to our index. And what about breaking it down by age? Yeah, uh, well, this is a trend we've been seeing for some time. The younger adults are much more at risk than the older adults. It's, it's quite high among the Gen Z, the millennials, uh, Xers at uh, one and two, and then it goes down after that. So what about getting help then? I thought this was an interesting result here. So people seem to be changing their mind about talking about this more publicly. Yeah, and you know... I. I think some of that is definitely COVID related. We have been trying to break down the stigma for years. I've been definitely advocating for that. Um, And, you know, we did see an increase in talking about it between 2016 and 2017. 
But huge jump, as you said in your intro, from 2018 to now. And I think that's got to be COVID-related. As much as, you know, everybody's been socially isolated, we have been talking a lot about the effects of that and the importance of checking in on our loved ones and, and talking to friends and family. Were you able to break it down at all by kind of income group? Like, do we know who is really feeling this? Yeah, that that's another one that is sadly quite predictable. The lower income groups are really suffering, which goes to show, you know, again, that that relationship with COVID and who's been most hit by COVID, but also other factors, um, you know, that just not making life easy. So contributing to those high stress levels. All right. Not an easy time for anybody. Jennifer, thank you for that. Thank you. That's Jennifer McLeod Macy, Vice President of Ipsos Public Affairs. So they polled uh, Canadians across the country about how we're feeling, essentially, on our mental health, the state of it. And they found some really interesting results here. Not There were some small silver linings, but not a lot of great stuff here. They found mental health issues really plaguing a high number of younger Canadians, 76% of younger Canadians, that would be, you know, millennials and younger saying that they are having trouble with mental health issues compared to 52% of those in Generation X and 31% for baby boomers. And when you break it down by region, also, uh, you can really see the stark differences. Mental health issues were found most predominantly in Alberta, Ontario, and the Atlantic provinces. In fact, Alberta saw the highest response. 60% of those polled considered high risk. The Atlantic region was behind them at 58%. Also, so more Canadians are willing to talk about it, which is a positive thing. They're more willing to reach out, talk about it with friends, family, professionals, or even on social media to just say, hey, I'm struggling here. They found the number of Canadians who've taken medications to help them with their mental health issues also went up in their latest poll. 30% of respondents told them that, yes, they are taking medication to help them. That is up from 18% in 2015. So you can see quite a difference there. Every three years they have been checking from 18% in 2015. Six years later, you're talking about 30% of people saying, yes, they are getting medication to help them with that. But no doubt about it, there is a mental health crisis out there. And something we're going to have to start dealing with. It's not going to go away just because the pandemic goes away. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. There have now been five shootings in the Lower Mainland since last Friday. The latest happened in the Guilford area of Surrey overnight, where a woman was taken to hospital with injuries. Now, more information on that is expected to come today. But, you know, it's another incident adding to the already heightened community concerns about the level of gun violence that's been happening. Shootings, especially gang-related ones, are a big reason why Surrey has been working towards having its own police force. But will that help to solve the problem? For more on this, we're joined now by Surrey City Councillor Jack Hundell. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, Simi. Now, watching what has been happening over the last five days, does it does it concern you about what's been also going on with this police transition in the city? Well, the police transition has always been concerning from the onset, um, even before we saw this escalation in regional gang violence. So we know that one of the reasons... Um, why some of the public bought into this, and it was a small majority for the police transition, was 
to um, have an impact on regional gang violence, but what I've seen in this police transition so far is really nothing that's going to make a difference um, if this thing even reaches to conclusion. Okay, so Jack, I'm just going to get you to hold on for one mm-hmm. second here, okay? Because right now we have some breaking news with Gordon McDonald. Simi, a sad update to what you're talking about right now. The woman who was shot last night in Surrey has now died. The Integrated Homicide Investigation Team says it is on the case. This was a woman who was shot shortly before 9 last evening near 161A Street and 96th Avenue in Surrey. She was wounded, sent to hospital now. Uh, murder detectives say she has passed away in hospital. Um, we don't know if this was targeted, gang-related, drug-related, maybe at the domestic dispute, but Simi, this is the fifth shooting in Metro Vancouver in the past six days, and three of them have been fatal. Much more coming up on CKNW News at the bottom of the hour. Thank you very much for that, Gord. Well, that's exactly the topic that we're discussing right now with Jack Hundell, Surrey City Councilor, former RCMP officer. Uh, Let's talk about the number of officers right now. When was the last time Surrey had some new police officers? So in 2018 was the last time that the Surrey police hired new officers. Um, and if you look at the growth in the population over those three years, you're looking at a growth of about almost 35,000 new residents coming into Surrey. So you're really stretching the current resources um, with this really foolish idea of not hiring new officers, even during a transition process. So when will there be, according to this transition process, when will there be an increase in the number of officers? Well, and that's that's a really good question because it all comes down to just the lack of transparency and change management uh, that's being put into this this transition. No one knows. No one knows what the cost is. No one knows what the results are going to be. And quite frankly, how do think people even realize uh, or know why we're even doing this now? Uh, and this is where I, I put some blame on the provincial government too, um, that uh, you have a big role to play in this. And ultimately, the final approval is going to be up to them. But as a very progressive government, um, you know, you look at the lack of diversity into uh, what's going on here. You look at the lack of attention and you really look at the lack of a regional impact that should have been done right from the beginning for this. What are you hearing, though, from police officers? Like what's going on behind the scenes in terms of how they're feeling about this transition and how that's impacting the community? Uh, Well, you have friends in, in, in both RCMP and municipal police forces, and a lot of them are very, very shy and hesitant to think, you know, what's going to be so different here with Surrey police that we currently don't have. Um, and a lot of this is based on on having those relationships with other agencies um, and working in that integrated model. And that comes after years of building up the level of trust. But when I look at the Surrey police, uh, the lack of even community engagement uh, asking the community if they can want this uh, just translates over to to relationships with other police agencies. So, how can council address this issue? Like, does it feel like your hands are tied? Uh, well, ultimately, I mean, the, if the voters in Surrey and across the province are going back to um, to vote, so another five hundred and twenty eight days. And what uh, people need to realize is a couple of things uh, in Surrey: the the new mayor, whoever that is, if it's uh, not uh, Mayor McCallum. Um, will be the chair of the the Surrey Police Board. That's a big change. The other thing that's really changed 
uh, a lot has been, when this whole process started, there wasn't a uh, National Police Federation Union, and now there is. So that's another um, another complex piece to this whole process. So now you're bringing in the labour relations to this. And Surrey taxpayers, uh, residents, even to this day, are asking, look, we want to have a referendum on it. And this is where I put it out to the police board, to the mayor and everyone else. If you're so confident in the process, put it out and ask a very simple question. Do you want this or not? That sounds like it's going to be a very busy, what, year and a half before the election here. But at that point, is it not going to be too late to change things? No, because it really ultimately it's up to the public to decide. They're the ones paying for this. And even... Uh, you know, even if you look at a model where uh, if they do end up getting boots on the ground here, uh, they're going to have to work in some sort of seconded model um, with the RCMP. And if that's the case, uh, they certainly do need to, um, um, you know, the secondment agreement only works as far as everyone agrees to doing it. And if the public chooses the next time, look, you know what, we don't know what this is going to cost us, we don't know what the difference is, and we're going to want to participate anymore, then I would expect those elected officials um, to make the right decision. So when you hear about incidences like this latest one, does it feel just yeah. just like, does it feel so disheartening? Cause you think, are we not making some progress here? Yeah. And, and I think, uh, you know, regardless of the police agency and that when you talk about the regional gang conflict, it's, it's very disheartening. I know for police officers and, and for the community leaders out there that go out there every day and try to make a difference and curtail this, but we really need to look at uh, in Surrey, especially is, you know, what's fueling this. And if we look at our overdose numbers as well, let's start addressing that as well. Um, you know, the people involved in the drug trade, I mean, you have this whole set of people that are using drugs as well. Uh, you know, how are we addressing that? Uh, and it just seems that, you know, we're really not really taking it very seriously. Unfortunately, this pandemic has taken over uh, a lot of resources, I, you know, and prioritize a lot of things. But we need to start looking at, you know, our our overdoses here, our drug use. Um, how can we help people, um, you know, to transition away from, from drug use uh, to become mm-hmm. clean and sober? Listen, thanks so much for your time about that this morning. Okay, thank you very much. Appreciate that. That's Jack Hundell, Surrey City Councillor and former RCMP officer, talking about the Surrey police transition. There hasn't been a new police officer uh, hired in Surrey since 2018. Now, even if you support the idea of a new police force, I'm pretty sure that's not what you signed up for. I think people wanted more boots on the ground. Remember when that was a banging of the drum was more boots on the ground? There hasn't been any new boots on the ground in three years. And, you know, as a transition is still ongoing, still going to be a while before those numbers increase. Found a way in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the Vancouver Asian Film Festival is kicking off Asian Heritage Month. And by doing so, they want a call for submissions being put out there. They want to hear from people. And our contributor, Raji Soha, has more on this. Hey, Raji. Hey, Sammy. Yeah, the Vancouver Asian Film Festival, or VAF, is the longest running Asian film festival in all of Canada. And this will be the 25th year. It attracts about 5,000 audience members over its four-day festival. And this year, obviously, there's going to be a mix of virtual and live events. It doesn't happen until the fall. But right now, like you said, they're doing their call for film entries. Here's VAF filmmaker Regina Lung on what kind of films they're after. We're definitely looking for Asian-Canadian story to tell um, around the community and also maybe their personal story, but it could be something comedian, it could be something documentary, and it's also including shots and features. What kind of submissions do you get? 
Oh, we got every submission from everywhere around the world. And uh, definitely, uh, we hoping 50% is come from Canada is because we support our own. And then the others probably will come from US or anywhere around the Asian world. Whereas Asian filmmakers, obviously, they don't have equal opportunities in commercial filmmaking industries. This festival presents an opportunity for directors and writers to share their scripts and meet producers in a much more supportive and really celebratory environment. Okay, that sounds nice. So it does seem like overall, maybe, you know, things are changing there because we saw that, right, at the Academy Awards this year for sure, right? Did you watch yeah, that? Yeah, there's, there's a, been a sea change, really. It, it feels that the last couple of years, there's so much more representation. Uh, there was director Chloe Zhao, who uh, took Best Director at Oscars this year. Minari won big. And yeah, Regina Lung also agrees. But I was surprised to see that she puts the onus, the responsibility on Asian filmmakers. She thinks that it should be up to them to work harder to get their stories out there. I think we just have to do more. The more people do it, and then and the executive in, in the industry, they will see it. And we, if we don't do it, no one can see it, right? So, and that's, uh, that's probably will change in the future. Yeah, access has opened up a bit in the last few years with more diversive platforms like Netflix and Amazon and, and streaming services have really transformed the landscape of diverse stories. Yeah, that's an interesting take that she has on it, though, that she thinks that the filmmakers themselves should be, you know, fighting harder to tell those stories. Uh, And how are they doing that in the context of all the kind of anti-Asian crime and the rise in that that we have seen recently? Like, do Do they think the festival can play a role in this? They do, but I think their approach is a little bit more delicate. So they have started an initiative. It's called Eliminate Hate, and it works to get creatives to share their stories of racism, uh, just airing them out. And instead of hiding it, which she says uh, they've been culturally conditioned to do. Interesting. Yeah, she talked about how the more that you get a chance to to talk about your stories, the more that um, people who are not Asian... Uh, just get exposed, exposed to the different ways that people are experiencing the world and experiencing racism. And then she hopes that we can eventually move towards equality through things like film, film festivals and art. The more you get a chance to talk about it and then um, people will know about it and then uh, things might change. So you feel like it's exposure that's needed first to Asian stories and Asian culture? Yeah, the more exposures for sure. Then you you know, and then people will know, and then will become balance. There mm-hmm. will be no difference between is there is an Asian story or non Asian story. You know, that's such a good point that she makes there, Raji, because I feel like, especially with Hollywood movies, right, like Minari too, what happens is that you watch it, you think you're going to be watching something about a different culture, but then there's so much that everybody can relate to that it becomes a universal story. Yeah, and and the hope is that people don't just watch one of these kinds of films a year, right? That we don't start, uh, or we don't look at it as an Asian film necessarily, right? Last year, there was uh, some talk at at, uh, the Golden Globes about uh, subtitles and that non-English speakers um, are used to watching, you know, big Hollywood films that we need to get the mainstream audience, non-Asian audiences used to just, hey, read the subtitles. It's not that big of a deal. 
Yeah, I actually sometimes turn the subtitles on just because I can hear it better. <laughs> you know, oh, I'm getting yeah. to that point. It's not a big deal at all. I agree. Yeah. Uh, thanks for that, Raji. Thanks, Amy. The Vancouver Asian Film Festival's call for submissions is actually open for another month until June the 5th. So you've got lots of time to get this in. Check them out online for that. The festival itself is going to be taking place this fall. And that was Raji Sohal, our Mornings with Simi contributor. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We've got vaccine messaging. We've got numbers going down, at least in BC. And then we have the news this morning that Health Canada has said you can use the Pfizer vaccine in kids age 12 to 15. So does that mean we're going to be lowering the age groups for vaccination? Joining us now is Dr. Jason Kindrachuk, Canada Research Chair in the Department of Medical, Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. Thank you very much for joining us. Good morning. How significant is this announcement from Health Canada this morning? Well, I think it's important, right? And, and there's, there's a couple of reasons why. I mean, first of all, I think it attests to the, the overall safety of the vaccines. When we think about, you know, some of our most vulnerable, uh, you know, community members, we obviously have to think about, about kids in general. So when we look at new therapeutics that are being approved, we want to ensure that anything that's going into kids is going to be absolutely safe. And I think that's a testament to the overall safety uh, of these drugs if, if they are deemed safe for kids. So to me, that's, again, it's a big win for, for Pfizer being able to show that they have a great product. Um, I think for us, it certainly gives us as well, uh, you know, some, some greater hope that not only are we going to be able to hopefully suppress transmission, but maybe we actually will be able to get closer to this idea of eliminating uh, the virus, um, you know, in, in regions across Canada or maybe even nationally, if we're able to now curb transmission within that age group. We, we have to remain cognizant that this is still a global problem. So we want to make sure that high-risk groups across the globe are, are vaccinated. Um, but it certainly gives us, I think, some some longer-term um, you know, confidence right. as well. Was that a gap that we had up until now then about, okay, we're vaccinating everybody 18 plus, but what about younger than that? I think it is, right? So one of the things that, you know, I think people across the board, whether they're researchers or not, um, kind of got into this mindset of was that, well, kids just don't get infected. We, we don't see severe disease and, and therefore, you know, we, the likelihood is we don't need to worry about transmission. Well, the problem is that, yeah, we still do, because even if, you know, infections are, are a lot lower in kids than they are in adults, that is still a potential mode of transmission. So when we think about this idea of trying to get transmission curbed, there, there probably is going to be a basal level we can get it down to. But if we can't stop it, uh, you know, moving around in kids, we're going to face this continual concern about, you know, will new variants emerge and what do we see um, in regards to, to people that maybe, you know, aren't you know, able to, to launch a full immune response, even with vaccination. So I think it, it was a big gap and, and certainly it was one that uh, I think we're all ha- a little bit more confident in today. Right. So do you think this means that provinces are now going to start lowering that vaccination age? 
Oh, that's a bigger question, right? So, right. Uh, listen, here, here in Saskatchewan, they, they just lowered it again the other day. My, my better half just got vaccinated yesterday. But it's, you know, trying to get a vaccine appointment around here is a lot more difficult than it was even a few weeks ago. So I think the issue that we're facing is you can lower the vaccination ages, but if you don't have a vaccine to compensate for, uh, you know, for that increased breadth of people that you can vaccinate, it does it does it really change the equation? So I think we will see the you know the ages get adjusted, but for the time being, we're we're still limited by overall uh, vaccine supply. Right. Uh, what about vaccine messaging? Because that's obviously been a hot topic the last couple of days. Oh. From your perspective, what what is problematic about what's been going on? <laughs> where, where to start? I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's really, certainly, the, listen. The, the, we we've all heard about the, the NASI announcement the other day, and, and I think um, you know. It, you know, far smarter people than myself have have certainly weighed in uh, time and time again about you know the concern that we had with the way the messaging came out, and and I think this has been our, our biggest concern is what happens to hesitancy if we don't get messaging right for for the vaccines. I think for us, it gives you know potentially that that added um, I guess positive side and positive spin to the vaccine with just what I mentioned this idea that. The, the, so far, the safety profile has looked extremely good in kids. We see good immune responses in kids. It, it's a testament to the overall safety of this vaccine. And I think that is one of the things that we really need to kind of hit home is that this is a vaccine that isn't just meant for one particular group. It is safe across multiple age groups and uh, and people with, with underlying health complications. So there's that really that the power is in the data that we've seen and the usefulness in the real world. Do you worry about vaccine hesitancy? 100%. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I kind of came up through, you know, through research and, you know, kind of you know, following in the days of the Andrew Wakefield uh, scandal. And, and obviously we still face that every day with, with the concerns about autism and vaccines, even though it's been roundly rejected. Um, to me, this is one of these things where, for years, I think we thought it was this small, you know, kind of you know, group of a few people that were very vocal. And now I think we're realizing that actually it's much broader and it isn't just people that are anti-vax. It also is people that are on, you know, that basically that precipice of trying to figure out where to get messaging from. We, we need to be very cognizant that uh, the words that we, that we say and the words that we use as a research community resonate with, with the public. And we have to get that messaging right. Oh, that is so true. Uh, thanks so much for your time this morning. Always a pleasure. That is Jason Kinderchuk, Canada Research Chair in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba, talking about Health Canada approving the use of Pfizer in kids 12 to 15. Might be a little while before you see provinces say, okay, fine, we're going to start doing this, because at this point, as Jason points out, it is also about supply, right? Making sure it is available for everybody. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's get more on the news this morning that the Peony is not going ahead with an in-person fair. We'll find out more about why that is. Laura Balance joins us now to talk more about that spokesperson for the Peony. Good morning, Laura. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear about this, though. So what happened? Well, I think uh, we've been working um, for since last year uh, on coming up with different versions of uh, what a peony in-person fair could look like based on different levels of uh, allowable attendance. But it became very evident this week that anything that would be financially a break, break even or even viable uh, was just not going to be allowed in this 
summer under the what we anticipate to be the un- upcoming health orders. Right. Uh, Dr. Henry was very clear that the larger scale events are not going to happen. And although we were working on a scenario which was a fraction of what we would normally anticipate for an in-person fair, it, it's still too far from from what is clearly going to be uh, this summer's health orders in in our province. So. Um, we made an incredibly difficult decision and the decision is hard for us. It's hard for our fans, but it is incredibly hard for our 9,500 direct and indirect employees, many of whom are uh, looking forward to their first job, um, our youth workers who depend on it for university tuition and families who depend on it for family income. So what about the idea of a drive-through fair then? Is it possible that might still happen? Yeah, I think what we're going to do now is shift to doing something that is uh, maybe possible under what we now anticipate the health orders will be. Um, I think that we are committed to connecting with our guests in some form and continuing to play that role as a place where British Columbia comes in good times and bad to to come together in any way possible. It is important to note that those drive-through events provided some very much needed employment for some of our young workers and some of our staff team members as well as some revenue for, for very, very hard-hit concessionaires and exhibitors. But they were not financial moneymakers for the p entity itself. Well, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Laura, thank you for updating us on that this morning. Thank you.